0: Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to say that we launched our new and improved newsletter. Every other week, we send you a short email jam-packed with actionable advice from the lives of our founders alongside other exclusive content. Basically, it's your toolkit to become a better leader. If you'd like to get in on the ground floor, visit findingfounders.co slash subscribe or check the link in the show notes. All right, let's get into it.
1: I start opening first doors and the people on the beach start screaming and they say, Oh my God, where's the water? All boats are laying on one side. In the bay there is no more water. So I just keep looking and looking and all of a sudden around the corner the water starts to come back in. Boat gets smashed by the speed of the water coming back in and the water was rising and rising. It didn't came in a form of a wave. It just came in a form of like violent return of water and raising with non-stop. But I was still on the beach and the water was still rising. So I said, holy crap, I just turned around and ran the other direction. So I ran to the other side of the island But once I reached the middle of the island, I saw people running towards me, with water behind them. So I said, God, what am I gonna do now?
0: It starts with just taking that leap. You have to work hard, you have to be incredibly smart.
1: Choose something that, even, to fail, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of.
0: It doesn't matter how badly you got beat in that. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go your that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Yippee, 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 yippee. <music> Welcome to episode two of our series on ecotourism in Cabo, Mexico, where we'll be discovering the stories of locals, their culture, and the landscape that makes up one of the world's top tourist destinations. Earlier, you were listening to commercial diver and ecotourism business owner, Philip Moser, as he described living through the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. But the absolute chaos that he survived wouldn't take away Philip's love for the ocean. In fact, he actually chose it for where we met. Could you just describe what is going on around us
1: right now? I decided that the best location here for our interview would be the ocean, the actual reason of my life, I would say. We choose like a tranquil spot here in the out in the bay of Cabo San Lucas, so we can see on our background is the arch, the most iconic highlight of Cabo San Lucas we can see all the city we can see the mountains in the background and probably very soon we'll see some crazy animals too if you spot one uh definitely give me a shout yeah of course yeah we're in the middle of the mobile array season those rays uh, jump out of the water up to three meters It could be very interesting oh my god happen anytime (laughs) just watch out
0: This is the first time that since I've been here that I've been out on the water, and wow, it's it's beautiful. You're seeing these rocks that are pale brown jutting out of the water and then multicolored buildings dotting the shoreline. Then if you look the other way, it's just the ocean as far as you can see.
1: Just endless blue. Endless blue. I think the ocean is inspiring. I've always been attracted to adventure. For me, the ocean is actually a synonym of adventure. Philip's attraction
0: to adventure perfectly describes what his story is all about. From learning new languages to traveling the world, Philip knows what it means to adapt, survive, and thrive in unknown environments. His love of travel and marine life has taken him to Italy, Australia, Honduras, and even Thailand, until finally opening his own preservation business here in Cabo. But before Philip could even make it to Mexico, his story actually begins on the other side of the globe, in Austria. Can you tell me a little bit about your connection to Austria?
1: My connection to Austria? Well, I'm, I am Austrian. I was made in Austria. <laughs> I was born in Austria, 1986. That's when my mom decided to pack all her stuff and move to Italy with my brother, who was uh, three years old at the time. I was six years old. Do you remember anything about getting up and moving? It was a difficult time for me. I suffered a lot from the separation from my parents, and and they moved very far away. So all of a sudden, my dad was not there anymore. I remember jumping out of a car, when my mom was driving back to Italy, and I jumped out of the running car was because I did not want to leave my dad behind. Wow. It was a difficult time for me. That sounds super hard. But uh, it, this is kind of things that also make you grow. Like those experiences that you survive, at the end, make you stronger. Italian is more about improvisation, getting out of difficult situations with creativity. Nothing is uh, really planned more happiness more joyful a more joyful life.
0: How did you start experiencing water and, and the ocean? How did your mother introduce you to maybe something that she loved? I mean one one of those ways was by moving to Italy but was there anything else?
1: Every year we would take like a, at least four or five weeks vacations in different parts of Italy or even France like to the islands around. We were like camping outdoors. What did you think of that? Did you like that? I totally loved it. Everything was so calm. The only noise that we heard was like the ocean or the nature sounds. And also it created like a lot of opportunities for creativity. She enjoyed being close to the ocean, she enjoyed the camping life and she just wanted to, to share this feeling, this experience uh, with, her, with her children. And I went that path. I kept going because I liked that, too.
0: With so much influence coming from his parents, Philip developed a deep appreciation for both nature and problem solving at a young age. In retrospect, he's able to pinpoint all these things that make him who he is and connect them back to his mom and dad. But they weren't the only factors that served as building blocks for where he is now. He attributes the creativity piece to his Italian roots and it's easy to see where that's coming from. From the architects of the Roman Empire to the painters of the Renaissance to famous fashion houses like Versace and Gucci, Italy has had no shortage of creative innovation. Creativity, it doesn't mean eccentricity or extravagancy, it means uh, creativity is meant to give uh, to a brand uh, a style. But throughout his childhood, Philip was also immersed in nature, something that has been linked to increased creativity. Those long camping trips probably helped to enable high levels of engagement, promote stress reduction, and open up channels for creative thought. Being outside felt good. Being surrounded by trees and the ocean gave Philip a sense of peace, even after moving to a new country. But as the years passed, that passion for nature and creativity would have to take second place as Philip began thinking about what career path to follow. As you grew up and like went towards like high school and were thinking about college, what were you thinking about studying and and where, where were your interests?
1: That's an interesting question because back then I remember that I was a little bit lost. I did not know exactly what I wanted in life. Nothing seemed to be really appealing to me. So I took the path that most of my friends took, the mechanical engineering path.
0: You studied mechanical engineering, basically, because everyone else was doing it. Seemed like the right thing to do. Just because, why?
1: It was the only real option that I had on the table back at the time, so it was not a, maybe a conscious option, but I really loved uh, mechanical engineering, yeah? I was all over, like motorbikes, uh, building them, this dismantling them, putting them together, make them work, make them better, make them faster, so. Did, did he ride motorcycles? I still have my old uh, Piaggio Vespa from 1974 and uh, that thing still works and it's still going pretty fast. So every time I go, it's my pride because uh, at, the, at, the, at the third kick, it always starts. Like even though I'm not using it every day anymore. So That's where the Austrian engineering comes in, influenced by Germany, <laughs> no. the precision. No, no, no. I think it's more the Italian creativity to make things really? work okay. when they don't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so you do have a little interest in mechanical engineering. You're you're fixing Vespa's, making them go fast. But you go into this job after college. Is it what you thought it would be?
1: I really like the job for sure. What I did not enjoy was the nine to five everyday lifestyle. And four weeks off a year so I can, I can spend the little money I was making during the rest of the year, that, that, that can't be it. Why, why, must, why, why did you be think more. that? There more.
0: Why did you think there was more?
1: I was not happy.
0: The joy that Philip felt out in nature just wasn't something you got from a regular job. At the end of the day, even though mechanical engineering was a functional career for Philip, that sense of fulfillment wasn't there. Something was missing. So we needed a life change, a drastic
1: one. I was already working, my brother finished high school, and he said, uh, I would like to go to Australia for a month. What are
0: you thinking when he says that?
1: Wow, that seems interesting, I'm coming with you. <laughs> my life is about exploring, I guess. That's what I find out in Australia. I needed to do more exploring. I wanted to be around people. I was just having a little illumination there. I said, "Okay, let me find out more about this because I'm still not sure. I just know what's at home. It's not right. I need to change it. So I quit my job. This is risky, right? Was it just easy to leave your job? It was not easy, because back at that time, I did not have a lot of money. I bought a ticket, a return ticket. I had $3,500 in my pocket, and that's all I had. I had like about two weeks' time to find uh, my way around, find a job, find a way to make money. Otherwise, I would have to take that return ticket to go back home. I had very little English skills back then. Right, because you're only speaking Italian and German. Italian and German. I had very little English lessons in my uh, mechanical school. So I remember sitting there in a youth hostel. I was like, my God, what am I going to do? I can't speak English. How am I going to find a job? I started using my creative skills, the Italian that was in me, trying to be like a nice person to be around. assets that I had, I put them on the table and I needed to use them all to find a way to survive. The other option was like going home and I would not consider that option so I was willing to do everything in my hands to stay there as long as possible. So what did you do? I had the option of I got taking like an English class so I looked in these options and they were super expensive I said, no way, can't do this. So I went the other way. I got drunk. <laughs> I got drunk and tried to find as many English-speaking girlfriends as I could. And that worked. Okay. Really? That's good. That's good enough. That's the best way to do it? I think so. Girls are the best motivation and alcohol loosens you up, okay? And that's how I think I, I learned English. Even though survival instincts may have helped Philip learn English,
0: his early move to Italy also might have had something to do with it. At age six, Philip had to learn Italian quickly. And studies show that becoming bilingual at a young age can actually help you learn languages faster later in life. Along with this, Philip learned under sink or swim circumstances. If he didn't learn English, he wouldn't survive in Australia. So he immersed himself in it, socialized with his people, and explored its culture. And with the language barrier broken, came the next step in his survival generating income. Once you've learned English, how do you find a job?
1: I looked around and said, "Okay, what can I do here as an illegal immigrant? Well, I was a tourist, actually. Okay, I was I had a tourist visa. I learned from other people uh, that you could stay in one spot for about four weeks before immigration actually or the authorities actually realized that, that those documents were fake. And so, every four weeks, I was on the move. You were
0: on the lamb. You I was amazing. on the run. <laughs> you were on the run from the government.
1: I was on the run from the government. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. I was picking fruits, like survival. That was the most common job for backpackers in Australia, picking fruits, working in the tourism somewhere, or in restaurants. <laughs> Some of the best stories are actually from uh, people that I met in the difficult situations while working, because there was not like easy working conditions, 10 hours in the sun, picking mangoes. I remember that one story when I was out there, a machine broke, okay? And they said, okay, we need two guys with a machete. I was there with an Irish guy. I could not understand a word from this guy. (laughs) I thought my English was already better. So we were outdoors with, with machetes. They brought us out there with a car. The lady, just before she left, she said, OK, just watch out for the snakes. And and the other guy, this Irish guy, he was huge. He was like probably two meters or something, so six feet tall. And he looks at me, he said, did you just say you're snakes or something? It's like... Yeah, she said, snakes, what's up? It's like, I'm leaving. I said, you're two meters tall and you have a machete in your hand and you're leaving? (laughs) You're leaving me alone. (laughs) So he left and I stayed there for 10 hours cutting sugar canes with a machete. And I said, I need to do this. It was good money, $100 per day back then. Pretty good. It seemed like a good deal for me to me. And I I did this job. So it was awesome. Uh, After 10 months of Australia, I had made a lot of experiences. Uh, I picked up uh, survival skills. I found a new love uh, for the ocean because I started to figuring out like, what I wanted to do in life and I, I came closer to the ocean.
0: Even with the hard working conditions that Philip had to put up with, he still managed to discover that zeal for life he'd lost during his nine to five. Whether it was plucking fruits from trees or tiptoeing around snakes and sugarcane, Philip was finally beginning to discover himself in a different light. Now, just like when he first moved to Italy, he was exploring a different world, immersed in new perspectives. But while cutting Sugarcane was a sweet gig, sorry, I couldn't resist, I know it's terrible, there was another career waiting that would change absolutely everything.
1: Uh, we were picking fruits and it uh, was hard uh, times uh, ten hours out there picking capsicums and zucchinis. And then this one guy said, uh, yeah, I'm also a diving instructor. And, uh, and I said, and a light went off in my head, diving instructor. I was after finding out who I was, what I wanted to do in my life. What's my purpose here on this planet? I thought like my purpose on this planet cannot be like a nine to five job and two weeks of vacation, three weeks of vacation a year. That cannot be it. So I wanted to find out more and I was willing to take whatever risk it was necessary to find out. All of a sudden, all that fruit picking was making sense (laughs) because I used that money to make my first diving certifications. We went diving in freezing cold water uh we went with uh uh, tanks over rocks and jumped in the water it was like now now that i remember it i thought it was actually crazy yeah it was actually crazy that i survived that too (laughs) but we survived so i said wow and i was totally in love with it so i think what did you love about it what i loved about it i tell you now i just remembered that when i was a child i had this dream about being an astronaut starting with my diving career, made me realize that I was a step closer to being an astronaut.
0: Yeah, instead of exploring the sky, you were exploring the depths. Yep. It sounds like Philip was living the life, traveling to beautiful beaches, exploring the depths of the ocean. There's no denying it. That sounds way better than a nine to five. At long last, his childhood dream of becoming an astronaut, well, was, at least kind of coming true, because now he had the chance to explore unknown worlds far below the ocean's surface. It's fascinating how the thing he wanted as a kid stuck with him after all these years. But it's not unusual for childhood aspirations to reveal passions and ambitions to follow one into adulthood. With only about 30% of people finding jobs in a field they'd always dreamed of, Philip was one of the lucky ones. Diving allowed him to combine his love for travel and nature into one pretty awesome career path. But despite all the success he was experiencing, the call for stability would soon call him back home.
1: So what happened after Australia, like after 10 months that I was traveling around of Australia, my bank account was close to zero. So I had an awesome time I probably would have found like ways to uh, stay longer there, but it, the time felt right and uh, my old uh, working colleagues called me back. So I took the opportunity, went back to Austria, went back to my old job for about a year and a half.
0: So you're back at this job. Um... You're enjoying it. You were nostalgic for it, but you also know you have this love that exists outside of the workforce.
1: I was nostalgic at it as long as I was in Australia. As soon as <laughs> I hit the day the f- day first on work, I was like, "I'm done." Oh my god, what did I do? Really? Yeah, I knew almost immediately. Th- uh, my dad even said, "Look, you don't look happy." Did you know you weren't happy? I knew. I'm also like a, 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 a guy that does not improvise decisions, okay? I was back home because I made a conscious decision to go back to that work. And then when I went back, it was like, okay, I made a mistake. Now I need to figure out a new plan. It was a hard time because I needed to deal with myself in the sense of, okay, what's next? What comes next?
0: What does come next? He had two choices. At a risk of sounding cliche, Philip's two options remind me of Robert Frost's famous poem, Road Not Taken. You know, the one that starts out with, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I'm sorry, I could not travel both. He had the mainstream path taken by so many others, which would mean returning to his old job and sense of security. And then there was the unconventional choice, diving. But Philip chose to return home to a job he looked back on with nostalgia. Having run out of money, a return to the familiar felt like the obvious choice. But his job and his home didn't make him happy. And the discontentment he felt before he left returned. But life is a series of choices and few choices are completely permanent. So it's time to reevaluate, to cut the cord again and leave.
1: Uh, throughout the years, uh, I developed uh, this uh, skill. If there's something that I don't like in my life, I'll change it. I want to be an, an active actor in my life rather than being a passive person that just, uh, oh, that's the way it is and not making conscious decisions uh, about where, which direction my life is going. It's not not an easy thing to change a total lifestyle. How many friends did I have that came here, visit me and say, Oh my God, you're living the life. Oh, how I would love to do what you do. You're like, you can. You can. I tell them, you can. I did it. Very few people that I know have found the braveness, the courage to change what they didn't like. It's like cutting an umbilical cord to, to the place you were born somehow. You had to cut it twice, because you cut it once to go to Australia.
0: You returned. I cut it more than twice. Can you you tell me about cutting it once again, when you realized that you had to leave?
1: Back then, some of the friends I met in Australia uh, ended up in Thailand. And uh, I was in touch with them. And uh, they said, come over here. The diving is amazing. And I said, OK. So once again, I decided to quit uh, my job, sell everything unnecessary that I had in my possession. I went to Thailand and uh, that was a good decision because Thailand had like, oh my God, it was, uh, it was beautiful. Do you remember that movie like Leonardo DiCaprio? I re- can't remember like the island it was called probably. That spot where he like swims uh, and then finds this uh, lagoon and there's like, uh, they, they're living their dream with these other friends and stuff. That was exactly where I went, PP Island. Yes, I've heard of it. PP Island was an unbelievable place. I was living the dream on this island between parties, great lifestyle, and learning my courses. And it was absolutely beautiful until day the 25th of December, 2004 hit. Until that day, he was finally living his dream.
0: He let go of his material possessions, left his job, And felt free again. But it seems nature had other plans. That day, December 25th, 2004, would change the course of his life forever. Why is that day important?
1: Seven thousand people are now thought to have been killed in southern Asia after an undersea earthquake sent enormous waves rolling across the Indian Ocean. The quake measured 8.9 on the Richter scale, the biggest in the world for 40 years. Waves up to 10 meters high engulfed the coasts of many countries. The quake's epicenter. It's very important because it was like uh, life-changing, in the sense of it almost ended my life. These 300 have been killed in southern Thailand, including some tourists, and hundreds of people are missing. And waves Tsunami the in of the Indonesia. The Remember that tsunami? Yeah. Killed almost uh, 300,000 people around the globe, killed about uh, 6,000 people in Thailand, and uh, uh, of those 6,000, 3,000 were on Phi Phi Island. The island could hold 9,000 people, 3,000 people died which means like one out of three so my chances were like pretty high to get hit
0: can you tell me about that day
1: it was the day after christmas okay so i still remember everything like we were in the dive team dive shop that i was working on on the 24th at night we were all there at the dive shop celebrating exchanging presents uh, drinking beers having fun and when midnight kicked in, I said, okay, I'm going because tomorrow I have to work. So I did not want to show up drunk. While everybody was still partying, I left the party, went home uh, and went sleeping. And at 10 o'clock, uh, it was my turn to open the shop. So I had the key of the shop. I started like opening the, do- the first doors and the uh, people on the beach start screaming and they say, oh my God, where's the water? so i just go on the beach too i look at the i look at the area where usually like all the boats come in like the the ferry comes in to drop off the people from the main that come from the mainland all boats are laying on one side they're all laying on one side in the bait there's no more water i never heard of a tsunami before i did not know what was going on so i just keep looking and looking and all of a sudden around the corner the water starts to come back in and a huge uh, whirlpool starts to form in this, uh, in this bay and the boat gets smashed by the speed of the water coming back in smashing one to each other boom, 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 boom so I was still on the beach and the water was still rising so I said, holy crap I just turned around and run the other direction I had water coming behind me So I ran to the other side of the island. It's not like I decided to run to the other side of the island. It's like I had water behind. I just ran to the other direction. But once I reached the middle of the island, I saw people running towards me with water behind them. So I said, God, what am I going to do now? So I just jumped on a table of a souvenir shop that was there, uh, hung on something so that the currents would not drag me away so i was on this table the water came up to my neck and that's it Uh, i could not tell you how long uh, it took from uh, when i saw the water disappearing to when uh, i had the water coming up to my neck like a war everything was destroyed Nothing was recognizable, no more streets, no more reference. The usual reference is poison, you know, you turn, you turn around at, at that shop or nothing. There was nothing left. There was only one building left on the island, which was like uh, one of the hotels that uh, turned out to be the place where the uh, helicopter would fly to, to pick up people, the injured people, to evacuate the island. The evacuation
0: point stands as the one building left on the island. Just as Philip had felt stranded, somehow clinging on to withstand the tsunami, that tsunami killed nearly 230,000 people that day. To put it into perspective, this was the deadliest natural disaster in the 21st century. The earthquake that caused it released energy estimated to equal 23,000 Hiroshima-type atomic bombs. The tsunami's waves reached almost a hundred feet, rushing across the ocean at 500 miles per hour. Despite this, Philip managed to survive and he put those survival skills to good use. I helped a lot of people too.
1: Turns out that one of the uh, last courses that I did before the tsunami hit was the EFR, the emergency first responder tour. Uh, course, and I used all my skills that I could. I found out that in that occasion that uh, I think I'm a survivor. I can survive in the most difficult uh, uh, situations. You know, like when there's like an emergency situation, you can react or you can stay total passive. Like, you don't know, you, go, you can go into panic. And I do whatever I can uh, to survive and help other people.
0: On the note of survival, like that's kind of how you've, you've explained a lot of your story. When you were talking about picking up languages, you explained it through the lens of surviving. And then you, when, you, when you talked about Australia, you talked about it through the lens of picking up survival skills to get enough money. And now I feel all of those other examples are, are, are metaphorical surviving. This is literal life and death.
1: I think life is about to learn how to survive your lifetime. Learning a job, learning how to do a job is like learning a skill that keeps you alive here on this planet. That's how I like to look at it. Like you pick up skills every time you do something new, you learn something new. You learn some, a new skill, a new, a new skill set that helps you staying alive on this planet or making your life easier on this planet eventually. So, for example, uh, in those two days that I was on the island uh, um, before a total evacuation, I was able to build two stretchers out of materials that I found around, bamboo sticks and uh, sheets, bed sheets. And with those stretchers, we were carrying injured people that could not walk to the helicopter place for evacuation. And that's the, the job that I did for two days. During nighttime, when it was no longer possible to walk on the debris, I was going into the restaurants. There was no more electricity on the island, uh, so all the food was going off uh, in the fridges. So I went into the restaurants, take out all the food, made fire, cooked food, bring it around to all the people that could no longer walk or could no longer uh, help themselves. And so those were my survival skills. When the tsunami hit, I was not a dive master yet. Therefore, uh, I had to go home because there was no more diving to be done in Thailand for a while. So I went back home and I said, okay, what am I going to do next now? But I have not achieved the goal that I wanted to. So guess what? After three months, I went back to Thailand again. You know when they say like uh, you have a motorbike accident, you need to go back riding one. Otherwise, you will never ride one again. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the kind of same thing. So I decided I want to go back because I don't want to have this trauma causing me to, have to live in fear for the rest of my life. So I went back to Thailand to confront the situation.
0: Philip returned to Thailand to finish his diving certification and to confront his trauma. To put the rest of the vestiges of the tsunami and dreams unanswered that haunted his future. There are four well-known responses to trauma, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Philip chose the first option, to fight, pushing through the obstacles and mental blocks that stood in the way of getting his dream. This also brings to mind some of our interviews in the psychedelic series that touched on how psilocybin therapy can allow people to confront and move past trauma in a controlled environment. This is all to say that for some, facing trauma is the only way to move forward. So Philip returned to Thailand to finish what he started.
1: So I went back to finish what I started. This time I went to the Gulf of um, of Thailand uh, on Koh Tao. Anyways, I finished my uh, dive master course there. I was pretty happy. And when I finished this, something else happened that made me go back to Italy to start another project, a home project where I started to learn a little bit of the skills to be an entrepreneur. You finally, after
0: years, get this dive master stuff, and now you're not going to like use it?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's true. Because there was like uh, nothing that I was willing to leave uh, untried. So this time there was like another project. My mom, uh, she had a little business in uh, Italy about uh, distance heating and translation uh, that she was doing between Italian and German language. And uh, it happened that right then when I finished my dive master course, my brother that was working with my mom uh, decided that it was his turn to go traveling. And so my mom needed a replacement and uh, asked me if I wanted to do it. Did you want to? It's not that I really wanted to, but I wanted to try it out because I thought that there could be a future in this. And I thought, well, this could be really interesting. And it was my first attempt to go into business. I went to Italy. We started working. Seems like you're, you're postponing what you actually want to do a little bit. Well, you know, the years between 20 and 30 were like the exploration years. Back then I was 26 years old and I still did not know exactly what I wanted to do. That's, that's how I see it too. Some people go to university, learn a set of skills, and then use them for the rest of their life, okay? I was just traveling world to learning the skills and uh, learning different languages, learning uh, how to network, learning how to quickly adapt to a new environment. Surviving. It's kind of funny.
0: A lot of people's learnings come from college, but we kind of skipped over that. And then it seems like, every, like all of the business things that you use to survive now, you
1: learn through your travels. That's correct. And I think um, traveling was my university. I actually call it my university. So I was there uh, for about six months with my mom. Did you like it? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem ideal, though. Yeah, no. At a certain point, I realized... That I could stay here in this job for many, many years. And uh, my mom would not give away the position to me. So I would have to wait forever. And you didn't want to wait forever.
0: And it would just be basically you're postponing your life once again. You wanted to live now. And so
1: how do you start living now? I imagine diving comes back. Exactly. Diving comes back. Diving comes back all the time. So what happens next is like, uh, I realized that uh, there was uh, no future in that uh, area in Italy for me. So uh, once again, I contact some friends that were traveling around the world, find out that one lives in Honduras. Once again, Philip's
0: dream chasing took him to another destination, this time, Honduras. When describing his path, this exploration period in his 20s, he mentioned something interesting. Traveling was his university. Philip learned the most in times when he was learning new languages, waving off snakes in a sugarcane field with a machete, and running from the government in Australia. These experiences taught him more than traditional education ever could. College as an industry has become irreversibly linked to conventional ideas of success, to this idea of the 9 to 5 that Philip pushed back against. So it might be worthwhile to think more about the choices we make and the paths we choose, instead of going with what is expected of us no matter how scary that might be. So Philip left for Honduras, but some dreams aren't what they are cracked up to be, as Philip would soon discover. So what was Honduras like at this time? You were also teaching people to dive there, right? That's correct, yes. So what was that like actually? Like the, the, this has been the dream for years, for years. That's correct, I finally
1: hit the spot. So what, what did it feel like to actually be in it? The actual purpose for this travel now was to become a diving instructor, yeah? I found it pretty quickly, and guess why? Because I speak four languages, okay? Here comes back the language skill, which is surviving skills again. I speak four languages in Honduras, I start to learn Spanish too, I pick it up pretty quickly because of my Italian, I guess, and because of a lot of alcohol, I invested a lot in alcohol. Anyways. I become a dive instructor in a resort called the Harry Morgan Resort, where a lot of Italians and the Canadians come. And I was living there for two years, and I've been a diving instructor for two years there, diving four times a day, and teaching in all four languages. And, all uh, four
0: languages? All four languages, yes. Oh, my God. You were an asset to whatever dive group you joined.
1: Yes. The problem was I was not making enough money. After two years of working on that island, number one, I got burned out. I got totally burned out. I could no longer see any tourists anymore. I did no longer want to have anything to do with tourists. I want to talk about that burnout.
0: Because, like, this was your dream, and then realizing that you're burning out on your dream,
1: it seems depressing. Honestly, it was a hard hit. Like I said, after two years working, I looked at my pocket and I was like, wow, I, I worked so hard. Uh, I almost did not go on vacation. My mom always says, oh, you don't need vacation. You live in vacation. Well, that's not really true because in diving four or five times a day, that means like 10, 12 hours of working a day, which means it's like working and sleeping, working, eating, sleeping. That's all I did. And so that was like, that's my dream. That is really that what I was working all these years for. So I had doubts in my head. How many uh, years has it been at this point that you've been working towards this goal? I was 28 years old back then. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening? What am I going to do next? It it was tough. Uh, After two years uh, being in uh, Honduras and doing the diving thing, I went back home. Again home. The thing is, this is different, though, because all the times
0: before you went to diving came just short of your goal. And now you're at the finish line. You're there. You were maybe celebrating for a little bit after having finished the race. And then you realized, wait, was that even a race that I wanted to finish?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was back then when I had to take a little break and think, okay, what's coming next? Because I reached like an age of where decisions need to be made. But I was not ready yet to make any major decisions. So, all right, keep experimenting, man. So I talked to somebody about commercial diving. A lot of people think they need to
0: settle somewhere to make strides in their career. But experimenting had proven to be just as lucrative for Philip. Learning to become a diving instructor took him across the world, taught him four languages, brought new friendships, and even led him to save lives. Like I said, it was like Philip worked tirelessly to finish a race that ended up not even being the right race for him. But as he ran, Philip was gaining endurance and strength. The finish line is never the end point for a determined runner. It's the starting point for the next challenge. And Philip would definitely need the strength from his last race to take on what was coming.
1: I said commercial diving, huh? Let's have a look at it, what that is, okay? So all of a sudden I found myself uh, on the internet looking on YouTube researching about commercial diving and I see this video of uh, these divers with a helmet on. This one diver is in a bell in complete darkness, opens, he goes out going down a depth at 200 meters going working and there's like this uh, really cool soundtrack. And the song is Nightwish. It's called Nightwish, but it's unbelievable, and it gave me goosebumps. And I realized I need to do this. There's no way I cannot do this. Commercial diving, pretty much, is like everything that you do. It's like dirt work underwater. So basically, anything that needs a diver to go
0: underneath the water to, to repair build something stuff, to, to repair dirty jobs, yeah, that's what you would do
1: exactly but this specific branch was like saturation diving okay saturation diving is like diving at depth, at deep deep depths
0: yes but because nitrogen poisoning is it
1: it's called decompression sickness and you can die from that correct yes There's different techniques on how you can dive, okay? And one of them is like called saturation divers, which means you live in a hyperbaric chamber, living on a pressure that is the same pressure as uh, at the depth that you're working on. That uh, hyperbaric chamber is on a boat. And then there is this bell where you enter, they lower you down at working depth. The hatch opens only when the inside pressure is exactly as the outside pressure. You go out and you work at that depth. Pretty much you are always at the same pressure. So the nitrogen bubbles that you were talking about that form the decompression sickness actually don't kill you. When I finish the work, then I have to decompress for about three, four days, depending on depth that I'm working on to come back to normal atmosphere pressure. So you pretty much live like an astronaut. This is closer to your astronaut dream, basically. That's correct. I'm there. I'm there. That my dream, I realized it once I was in the chamber. I was like, I'm I'm there. I ended up for six months uh, going back and forth like three times to Nigeria. We had security following us 24-7. We had like three little boats heavily armed with machine guns that were machine guns. Yeah. We're circling around us 24 seven, just to make sure that an unidentified boat comes closer, they come and catch it. Okay. And we had three times pirate alarms. Can you imagine 2010, we had pirate alarms. Oh my God. Why were you doing this job? I mean,
0: I I know it was part of it was because maybe it it seemed like a cool job and it was closer to that astronaut dream, but was it to prove something to yourself? Why? Because it's so dangerous.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the real reason I did this uh, was I wanted to do a job in my life where I could find out about my limits. How much can I endure? I want to do it now because I was still single. And that was the purpose. Like I said, I watched those videos on YouTube. I got so inspired. And that music, it comes on to my mind all the time. And I said, oh, my God, I need to do this. And uh, I made a plan I found actually in Italy a school that some uh, fundings by the European community. So the course actually was for free. And I said, okay, I have to do this. I'm jumping right on it. And I did it. I still love the ocean. I love the idea of diving. I was just sick of tourists. At what point did you feel you wanted to stop or change? and Why? You remember when I said that I was working for two years in Honduras and I walked off with $3,000 in my pocket? sometimes I need to make some real money here because otherwise I'll be always on the brink of bankruptcy. And that job was giving me also that opportunity. I thought I'm going to do this until I have enough money to go and start a business. It would give him enough money for sure, but Philip would also have to be
0: alive and well to start a business at all, which in saturation diving isn't exactly guaranteed. But that's the exact kind of risk that Philip wanted to take. If you could overcome the risk of electrocution, hypothermia, drowning, and explosions that accompany saturation diving, then starting up a business would feel like nothing. So while I don't know if I can recommend everyone put themselves at risk of electrocution and hypothermia, I can recommend choosing to do something that scares you or seems beyond your ability. Whether it's running a marathon or skydiving, there's no better feeling than making it through something we once feared. It's a refreshing reality check, reminding us of how much we can accomplish when we ignore self-doubt. Philip would walk out of there, not just with the funds to start his own business, but also the confidence to execute it. Wait, why Why did you want to start a business?
1: Actually, I was not thinking about business. I just wanted to have my bank account filled up and see <laughs> what I will be able to do with it, okay? I reached the point where I wanted to be. I became a commercial diver. I had incredible experiences diving. Shifts of 12 hours, seven days a week for two months in a row in really harsh conditions brought me to my limits. And the job in Nigeria finished. So I had money in my pockets and uh, I was ready for a vacation. And again, I looked to my friends that I had around and uh, wrote an email and said, hey, where are you? Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Uh, After three months being here uh, with uh, a friend, uh, we thought about uh, starting a diving business. And at the same time, I found uh, the love of my life. Okay, the mother of my three children now. I did not know back then, right? But it was at the beginning of something. I I felt it, like the business had a good idea, the relationship uh, that was just at the very beginning. But I thought, you know what? Right at the same time when my flight back uh, was about to happen, the company I was working for called me and said, hey, we got a new project coming up. Would you like to come uh, and uh, join us? Commercial diving again.
0: That's the umbilical cord. Well, maybe maybe somewhat of the umbilical cord coming back.
1: We are there. We're there. We're about to cut it. Because I told them, look, uh, you know what? I have a good feeling about the projects that are here. I need to give it a shot. I need to see how these things work out. So I told them, you know what? Let me please skip the first shift. Call me back in two months because it's two months uh, uh, shifts, more or less. And uh, let's talk uh, in November. They called me in November. I said, um, you know what, I'm not coming home. And that's the last time I touched base with a commercial diving company. It's funny, we're saying the
0: umbilical cord was cut, but it seems like Philip had found another to attach to. He'd found a place that felt even more like home than the one he came from. A lot of people cling to the comfort of a place they once knew. But just because we know something well, doesn't mean it's meant for us. Philip followed his intuition and let it take him around the world. It took years of exploring an uncertain path, but it led him to the perfect fit. And like all things in life, it didn't come without its challenges.
1: You know, there is a song by Johnny Cash that says when you fall in love with uh, the land as well as with a woman, then it's true love. Well, I guess that's what happened to me.
0: And, and, and although you're, you're loving it and you're, you're, you're ready to cut the umbilical cord, was starting this business with your friend easy?
1: Uh, no, nothing at all. Nothing was easy. I barely got in touch with the Mexican culture. My, uh, so I had to learn about the Mexican culture and their way to make business. Uh, and then uh, my first partner was like a Canadian, which uh, the first partnership actually went down the hills. It was not that good. We had some disagreements. Uh, when money comes in between and partnerships, it's always, always difficult. So it's uh, another lesson that I learned there. Uh, never make any partnership with friends or family because when there's money in between, relationship go, down, go downhill. That's a lesson that I learned. Um, Can you tell me about some of those conversations as it went downhill? And Well, and- it was like an imbalance about uh, how much money each of the partners put on the table. And the other one, the amount of work that each uh, partner was doing for this, uh, for this project, the project did not take off uh, as quickly as we wanted it to. Uh, it was not successful at the beginning. But I knew that this partner was not the right one. So we, uh, we decided to break up and I carried on on my own, my own path. Okay. I did not have to deal anymore with a person that was not as collaborative, that did not have the financially wise that I was doing. So I was on my own pretty much. And, uh, I found out, uh, that I was working pretty good on my own, like very quickly decision-making decision process making. But even though you were working better on your own, I mean, for me, I,
0: I feel, you know, thing, things are, are working well with what I'm doing, but there are times, you know, during, during the months, during the quarters, during the years where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> like, what is going on? That's Do I even goodness. have direction here? Did you ever have moments like that?
1: Well, yeah. At this point, I was dreaming like about having my own dive shop. And I had a pretty good idea of what a diving shop was. So I thought that I could do it better. I have enough skills to do it better. But uh, diving is not the only skill that you need to become a successful uh, uh, businessman. To become successful here in this highly and uh, competitive environment, it took quite a long time. I had to change the name of the business, I had to change uh, the activities that I was doing. For example, I, it started like as a, a scuba diving business and then it turned into a whale watching business before before it returned to be a scuba diving business also. I needed to figure out how things work here in Mexico, but you need to adapt. Business is all about like survival thing, again, survival. Yeah, you you throw things on the wall and you see what sticks in those three years, in the first three years, they were very tough. I remember not making a lot of money, not at all. I remember being in my office at five o'clock in the morning. I called my dad and I could no longer hold it. I cried like that was probably the last time I cried that I can remember crying. Because I was totally broken. I was like, oh my God, I put so in so many hours. I put so much effort in all this. Uh, I think uh, I thought I was doing the right things. And uh, everything I got was like failure all around me, like problems and failure. And like, oh my God, I felt like I'm better off like being an employee somewhere and not having all these worries. And uh, yeah, so that was uh, uh, one of the crucial moments. How do you, how do you come back from that? Not giving up, you can't lose if you never give up. Once I got married, and once I had a child on the way, that gave me the motivation to never give up. Knowing that I was going to be responsible for another human being, my, my first daughter, I was like, this changed my life. It gave me a total different focus. I was like working so hard because I, I'm i the provider for her future. And so that gave me the motivation to never give up. So back at the time, I was like doing every type of different jobs that I could. I was working on... Uh, as a diving instructor, freelancing around, because I did not have enough jobs. So, so I was working on different boats. I also dropped, bought a little drone. I was filming weddings because that was a big thing back then. That was like the time when drones came out. Wait, So
0: you completely, for a time, pivoted away from diving
1: and was just doing weddings.
0: Yeah, why not? Filming weddings might not have been what Philip had envisioned, but it was what he needed to do to take care of his family. Just as Philip had said earlier, in times of emergency and distress, some people freeze and some people take action. Philip has always been the type to take action. He could have easily let himself sink beneath the pressures he was facing, but instead, in his words, he took responsibility for what he was doing. I really like how he phrased this. In this moment of pain, he told himself that where he was at was of his own doing. As much as this could sound like self-criticism, it can be an empowering reminder. It means that we have agency over where we are. And if we change our actions, we can change our life. Philip confronted his failures and stepped up to the task of overcoming them. Eventually, he would not just survive, but prosper and give back to the greater Cabos and Lucas community.
1: Year after year, things uh, uh, became better and better. And that, be- and that was mostly because uh, of the good reputation that we started building. Okay. Reputation is so important these days, online reputation, like stuff like TripAdvisor. And without reputation, there's very little you can do. And to build up a strong reputation that took about three years, I worked uh, 360 on improving experiences, uh, uh, making a, a quality tours uh, to people. Uh, One of the ideas that I had for my tours was that I wanted to make my tours educational, okay? You know, you want want to diversify a little bit from everything that uh, was to be found in Cabo. And so I thought about like hiring marine biologists. So when the people go on the tours, they learn actually uh, something about what they're seeing. It's not like, oh, wow, a whale breach there. What is that whale? Oh, God knows. No, 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 we have like uh, somebody on board that tells you stories about them, okay? We started to do research uh, with whales, like by identifying them. So we could actually identify the the proper whale and tell you, okay, well, look, this whale was seen, I don't know, somewhere in uh, in California, like some months ago, yeah, exactly. So we made the like, tools a lot more interesting. And also
0: just a story that I'll, I'll put in here is, is, is talking to the other people in the ecotourism space. What it seems like companies like yours have been doing is you've made it more profitable to protect wildlife than to destroy it. These animals are worth more alive to the tourism industry of Cabo than they are dead. So it's prevented things like overfishing and encouraged education across all the tourists that come here to not only pay for tours to see this wildlife, but also learn to respect them, which it seems like what you're doing with the educational component.
1: Yeah, exactly. Part of our education is like uh, uh, going to school. So we visited, we made deals with different uh, uh, schools here in Cabo and with the orphanage as well to give everybody the the opportunity to learn about the ocean because a lot of these kids here live so close to the ocean but actually never go to the ocean. So they need to know that uh, Cabo is like a a place that lives off tourism, that whales, for example, are very important to the uh, local economy. A lot of Americans, tourists from all over the world come here to Cabo to witness whales. This benefits like everybody, the whole community, the hotels, people that work for the hotels, everyone. Okay, so we need to protect them and we need to teach the local people that they are important, that we need to protect them. You see, like all these projects are not projects, are projects for profit, okay? These are all projects to give back to the community. Yeah, and to raise awareness about the importance of the ocean.
0: Marine life disturbance is one of the most important issues of our time, and Philip is now a part of the solution. Just like when the tsunami hit, once Philip ensured his own security, he immediately sought out what he could do for others. For the most part, when tourist companies decide to scale, sustainability is destroyed. These companies are what have caused the overdevelopment threatening Baja's marine environment. While they thrive off of exploitation, Philip has found a way for his business to thrive off of altruism. The more Trek inspires and educates their guests to take care of the world, the more their customers actually enjoy their experience. And the more guests that flock to this experience, the more Philip can support additional environmental projects. He's created a feedback loop that continuously promotes environmental justice. It took Philip time to discover how he'd contribute to the world. but The lessons that led him there made it well worth the wait. Something that I think I've learned from this story, it's just talking about survival and also the moments where your your life, anything that you you care about is put into jeopardy. Those are the moments where you can learn the most because there is a need. And that's how you learn languages. There was a need when you, you were uh, thrown in, into to Italy, and it was, you learned Italian in three months. When you came to Cabo, you did the same with your business. You learned how to conduct business and you learned how to survive because it was necessary. It was necessary to support your family. And you brought all these skills with you because you put yourself in situations that tested your limits. Like when you were talking about uh, the commercial diving. I think that's something that I'm pulling away from this conversation is pushing that comfort zone um, to learn. And it seems like that's what you've been doing your whole life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um I was pushing the limits. I was pushing the limits. I was constantly going out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm in my comfort zone now. There's nothing I would like to change. COVID actually changed uh, a little bit, uh, took me out of my comfort zone, and I'm making a lot of changes in my business right now in order to survive again. Uh, because it's tough times so we are modifying the way we've been doing things the last three four years try to uh, to grow the business uh, make the business more independent more independent from me so that the business works on its own and once this happens uh, i have another bunch of ideas that i'm working on and uh, that i'm willing to develop i'm constantly looking for new things to do new challenges and um, yeah and keep life exciting
0: Philip clearly has no problem with change. This is what led him to stay present and learn from these moments of discomfort. It's so much easier to fall into a routine or try to stick with what we know. But if like Philip, we listen to our intuition and ride out the current of life's changes, we can show up and grow with each turn that they take. Quitting engineering, moving between Austria, Italy, Australia, Thailand, Honduras, and Mexico, being caught amidst a tsunami, losing interest in diving instruction, almost reaching bankruptcy. None of that was part of any plan. But Philip never resisted these changes. He stayed engaged, adapted, and solved every new puzzle life threw his way. His openness to change has made him a lifelong learner, someone who decades into his career is still willing and eager to challenge himself. Of course, he has his support system, his family, his wife above all else, he told me later, was so important throughout each change in his life. But change in general can either be an inconvenience or an opportunity to grow. Either way, it's inevitable. So we might as well take the lead from Philip, show up for it, and opt for the latter. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
1: Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin.
0: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria Nathan Tower Callan Turnbull Lauren Yamada and Maura Lynch Our Outreach and Research
1: Lead is Ankitun Nambiar with support from Miriam Arden Sarah Hobson Lisa Le Kenny Ong Melody Sopani
0: Therese Tan and Marie Vaughn Our Writing Team Lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Natalie Agnew Abigail Asheria Elise Caldwell,
1: Harrison Duffy,
0: Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Vidla Seminario. Our design team lead
1: is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is
0: Eli Lawrence with support from
1: Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia.
0: To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.